Welcome to another African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Kansas City Star, thegrio.com, audiophile.com, thechicagodefender.com, the Associated Press, New York Magazine, and Downbeat Magazine. Next up on the African American Hour is an op-ed piece from thegrio.com. The title is, Is Black History Month Marketing Offensive? It was written by Maisha Kai and was published March 9, 2022. The subtitle to this op-ed is, In a survey of 1,300 black Americans, approximately 20% found Black History Month promotions disingenuous and offensive. Are Black History Month promotions a celebration of our history or a show of hypocrisy? A survey of 1,300 black Americans found many feel the answer is the latter. One in five respondents said they find Black History Month marketing offensive, causing them to question the motives of brands that participate in them, reports digital.com. Specifically, an overview of the results found 20% of respondents doubted the intentions of brands engaging in Black History Month promotions. Further, 21% found the marketing of the month outright offensive, citing campaigns waged by major corporations and social media businesses as the most egregious. They are companies that all year long have nothing to say about supporting, recognizing, and giving back to the black community. And February is the only month they feature their black models in their ads, so use their token black employees for show. Kaisha Parrish, CEO and founder of education and consulting company, Luberta and Kalionani Incorporated told Digital.com. The name of that company is spelled capital L-U-E-B-I-R-T-A, capital K-A-L-E-O-N-A-N-I. We, black people, know the difference. And best believe we are side-eyeing all companies that are putting on the show just for the month and go back to their regularly scheduled programming afterward. Entrepreneur educator Jules Singletary echoed the sentiment noting that such promotions often seem performative and disingenuous, adding, I believe Black History Month promotions are pandering to the black community. I would love to see brands be more thoughtful on how they are marketing to black people 365 days of the year, not just during the month of February, she continued, surmising many black consumers not only find targeted promotions offensive, but likely aren't swayed to buy. The survey's findings say otherwise, as 66% of respondents would actually like to see more brands participating in Black History Month promotions. Additionally, 85% said they felt somewhat incentivized to shop a business that does. While no one is under any illusion that a brand's aims are wholly altruistic, 93% of respondents believe Black History Month promotions are at least somewhat supportive of the black community, reports Digital.com. That said, it's worth noting that those who may benefit most from Black History Month promotions are the black influencers, entrepreneurs, and brands corporations on board as temporary ambassadors as they get more exposure and income as a result, explains Singletary. Companies see a boost as well, but they're likely to see the most returns by investing in diversity initiatives year-round. Research shows that companies who demonstrate that they are socially responsible tend to grow strongly financially, said Dr. Jovan Willis, a Ph.D. in educational leadership and policy studies, told Digital.com, adding, the truth will show in their diversity and inclusion data and initiatives. That may be true, but as long as Black History Month is celebrated, adjacent promotions probably aren't going anywhere. 
Nevertheless, brands would do well to listen to the survey's results. The key to inclusion is empathy, advised digital small business expert Dennis Consort. It also helps to craft your messaging so that it doesn't come across as tokenizing. This requires one to be open-minded about a diversity of thought when it comes to sensitive topics. Hopefully, big brands are listening. We'll see next February. That was an op-ed piece by Maisha Kai from thegrio.com. The title was, Is Black History Month Marketing Offensive? It was written March 9th, 2022. Next on today's program is a story from the ChicagoDefender.com website. The title is, The Legacy of the Pullman Porters Lives Today. It was written by Tammy Gibson and was originally published February 25th, 2022. The Pullman Porters were more than men shining shoes, carrying bags, cleaning and setting up the sleeping berth. These hardworking men were architects of the black middle class and were respected in the community. The Pullman Porters played a vital role in the Great Migration, helping transport the Chicago Defender newspaper to the South. The Chicago Defender published articles detailing the opportunities to live a better life in Chicago and encouraged Southern blacks to move North. The Pullman Porters would sneak bundles of the Chicago Defender newspaper on the trains and dropped them off at barber and beauty shops so they could be distributed to black Southerners. As a result, thousands of Southern blacks fled the South to the North. While Pullman porters were respected in the community, they endured low wages and long hours without overtime pay. To receive full pay, Pullman porters had to put in 11,000 miles or 400 hours. In addition, Pullman porters had to buy their uniforms and pay for their food. Overworked, poorly paid, and often subjected to racism and disrespect, the Pullman porters were still required to do their jobs with a smile. The Pullman porters felt it was imperative to form a union. In 1925, the Pullman porters formed the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first black labor union in the United States. A. Philip Randolph, labor rights activist, was elected as their president. On August 25, 1937, after 12 years of resistance, the Pullman Company signed a labor agreement with the Pullman Porters and Mays that included increased wages and a limited working more than 240 hours a month. The landmark win was the first in U.S. history that a union of black workers reached a bargaining agreement with a major U.S. company. The legacy of the Pullman Porters lives on today and is carried on through their descendants. Award-winning author Art T. Burton is the son of Arthur T. Burton Sr., who was a Pullman porter. Burton Sr. worked on the Illinois Central, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, North Pacific, and the Union Pacific. His favorite railway was the Santa Fe, traveling from Chicago to Los Angeles and San Francisco, where he spent most of the time as a Pullman porter. Burton Sr. met celebrities such as Jack Benny, Paul Newman, and Bob Hope. Burton Sr. enjoyed the brotherhood with the Pullman Porters. They looked out for and supported one another. When Burton Sr. was at home, he would hang out at the Pullman headquarters on the south side of Chicago to meet up with his Pullman brothers to socialize and play cards. The Pullman Porters were the bedrock for the middle class in many cities around the country, says Burton. As a child, Burton loved trains because of his father. Burton remembers his father taking him on one of his routes to California. As a 12-year-old, it was one of the most amazing experiences, said Burton. Burton Sr.'s daily ritual was reading the newspaper at home. 
I have a deep appreciation for reading because of my dad, he said. Burton Sr. retired in 1968 after 38 years as a Pullman porter. He was able to save enough money to send his two kids to college. Burton Sr. was most proud of building a house in Phoenix, Illinois with his own hands. Arthur T. Burton Sr. passed away March 25, 2005 at the age of 101. Burton wants people to know that his father, Arthur T. Burton Sr., was committed to his family. They were not rich, but they had a decent life. His father was dedicated to his job and took great pride in wearing the Pullman Porter uniform. Burton was in possession of his father's Pullman Porter coat and hat. Cook County Commissioner of the 6th District, Donna Miller, was the great-granddaughter of Norman Robinson, who was a Pullman Porter on the Santa Fe Rail. Robinson lived in Chicago on 64th and St. Lawrence. Robinson married Anna Mae Black, one of the Chicago Women's Golf Club founders established in 1937. Miller remembers going to visit her great-grandfather, who she called Grandpa Norman. Growing up, I spent a great deal of time with my great-grandfather, says Miller. Miller remembers her great-grandfather being a sharp dresser. Grandpa Norman always wore a suit and hat. He never left home without his hat. I can only imagine it came from a time when he was working hard as a porter and had respect for himself as a man. He earned dignity and respect because of the lifestyle he chose, says Miller. Miller honors her great-grandfather on her social media for Black History Month with a photo of Robinson at her college graduation at Howard University. It means so much to know that a Pullman porter could stand witness to his great-granddaughter graduating from college, says Miller. Preserving and honoring family history is important to Miller. As a mother of two sons, Miller wants them to know their family history and legacy. I tell my two sons the reason I want them to know where they came from is so no one can take that away from them, says Miller. The Pullman Porters were pioneers dedicated to their jobs and influenced economic and social justice. Their sacrifice and contributions played an essential role in this country that will have a lasting legacy in black history. To learn about the history of the Pullman Porters, visit the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum at 10406 South Maryland Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. That was the story, The Legacy of the Pullman Porters Lives Today. It was written by Tammy Gibson. It appeared at the ChicagoDefender.com website and was originally published February 25th, 2022. Up next on the African American Hour is an obituary from the February 20th edition of the Kansas City Star. The title is, Dr. Norge Jerome, researcher who founded Field of Nutritional Anthropology, dies at 91. It was written by Jack Howland. Editor's Note. This feature is part of a weekly focus from the star meant to highlight and remember the lives of black Kansas Cityans who have died. Through the halls of the University of Kansas Medical Center, Dr. Norge Jerome had the hard-earned reputation of a serious-minded, trailblazing rock star, a researcher whose insights into the ties between nutrition and culture helped her create a new field of study taught in colleges across the world. The Grenadian-born woman, though, was far less intimidating than her daunting resume friends and colleagues recall. Her love of humankind and of mentoring to those facing down the same obstacles she did guided her life and work. When Dr. Rosetta Robbins joined the staff some 50 years ago as the director of student aid, she knew Jerome as a professor beloved by her students and revered by colleagues. She knew her, too, 
as one of the only other black faces in a sea of mostly older, mostly white men, and the sole faculty member of color. Robbins, then in her 20s, looked up to her. They met for the first time in a chance encounter in a hallway as Jerome enthusiastically told Robbins she had heard she was here and had been meaning to say hello. Robbins later sat down in her office for a proper meeting. Her staff protectively hovered around her, admiration in their eyes. Mementos from her trips to different continents hung on the walls. Jerome spent a lot more time with her in the coming years as they built a close friendship, advising her on navigating the bureaucracy of the medical field as a woman of color. She spoke often about her steadfast belief in women supporting women. Robbins, now a retired lawyer living in Kansas City, learned over time she was one of possibly hundreds of young women Jerome helped. She thought it was very important for females to have positive role models, Robbins said over the phone this week, and she saw to do that. World's First Nutritional Anthropologist Jerome, whose distinction as the world's first nutritional anthropologist meant less to her than her commitment to improving the lives of others through her charitable work and personal mentorship, died two months ago on December 21st after years of gradually worsening dementia, family said. She was 91. Her family noticed her condition was getting worse as Christmas crept closer, so they decided to bump up their regular end-of-the-month Zoom call, inviting friends and relatives separated by oceans to say goodbye, according to Jerome's 68-year-old niece, Jacinta Johnson. She died before the set time came around inside the Village Shalom long-term care in Overland Park. They kept their planned call anyway so they could properly mourn the woman who touched all of their lives. Growing up in the tiny and impoverished island nation of Grenada, Jerome was among the lucky few who were educated and dreamt of harnessing her intellect to help people, said Johnson, who resides in Toronto. She accomplished all she could have ever imagined and more. Jerome's groundbreaking studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she first posited the idea that nutrition and anthropology could be studied in unison, led her to invent a new medical discipline and profession for herself. As a nutritional anthropologist, she authored a book, founded what is now known as the Worldwide Council on Nutritional Anthropology, and wrote research papers discussing everything from societal behaviors and dietary habits to the struggle for civil rights. Those are now housed in UMKC's Labud Collection for Historical Preservation. She was bestowed with various accolades over the years from her many contributions to society, like when the Star Women's Hall of Fame inducted her last year, or KU's Department of Preventive Medicine and Health established a scholarship several years ago for graduating medical students in her name. She also was given the Higuchi Research Achievement Award from KU in the early 1980s, which Robbins said meant a lot to her because she was the first ever recipient and a black woman. But loved ones say she felt proudest of her endless philanthropic work, helping out in places like her home country where she started giving an annual award to four outstanding educators and helped fund a library. She was very big on giving back, Robin said. I think really that dates back to her culture, the values and norms of the island that she grew up in in Grenada. Born in Mont Placier, capital M-O-N, capital P-L-A-I-S-I-R. She was born on November 3, 1930, in the small village of Montplacier and would be the eldest of six children, including her adopted sister. Her parents operated a small shop that was comparable to the neighborhood corner store, 
with groceries and toiletries and other items people might need. It was one of the few shops in town and a community gathering place. Jerome's father additionally ran a business where he bought people's nutmeg, the island's most profitable export, recounted Johnson. He was in a unique position to provide his daughter with an education, and she was such an outstanding student, she got into St. Joseph's Convent Boarding School run by nuns. The facility was located in the capital city of St. George's, about 14 miles away. Like many of the out-of-town students, she lived with a family in the city during the week and returned home to her family on the weekends. After she graduated at 16, she continued her academic pursuits at the school for several more years as an elementary teacher, and she also led programs at the Grenada YWCA. She was living in the city in 1955 when Hurricane Janet swept across their island, toppling homes and uprooting trees. Jerome walked all the way back to her home to check on her family, stepping over branches and debris on the roads, unsure what awaited her. She had to climb over, go under, etc., Johnson said. That's a story she never forgot. Her harrowing experience with the storm came just before good news in her life, getting the opportunity to study at the University of West Indies in Mona, Jamaica. She chased what she described as a taste for scholarly activities to the historically black Howard University in Washington, D.C., where she graduated magna cum laude and was excited she had maintained eight successive semesters of perfect 4.0s. That had translated into eight tuition scholarships. She moved on to the University of Wisconsin next, where she got her master's in experimental foods and microbiology, then returned to Howard for a year to be a professor of nutrition and dietetics, then came back to Wisconsin to research international nutrition. An academic advisor suggested she add a minor. She picked anthropology and the rest is history. Her desire in her research was to understand how the nutritional needs in different societies vary and break down cultural barriers thinking back to her childhood when visiting doctors would bring in their own biases, family said. Model of Success When she joined the KU Medical Center faculty in 1956 to continue her academic journey, she was the model of success in her friend Robin's eyes. She was not only respected as a scientist, but she had the respect of her colleagues, she said. That says a lot for being in a male-oriented, male-dominated workplace. She carried herself with a smile and a confident strut, always well aware when she was the only black person in the room, but never letting it stop her from what she needed to do. She faced blatant discrimination at times, Robin said. When she moved from Wisconsin to Kansas City, a landlord refused to rent an apartment to her. She later secured a place after a white friend posed as the rentee. Those who grew to be friends with Jerome during her four decades at the KU Medical Center knew her as a perfectionist in everything she did, but also as a mischievously funny, laid-back person. She admired fashion, dressing, and clothing from her international travels, made from finely woven fabrics and filled with colorful crisscrossing patterns. She saw the Kansas City Symphony every month and was a regular at the Unicorn Theater, where she later funded the Norwich Jerome stage. Though she never married, she had an active social life, getting drinks with friends and sometimes jetting off with them to faraway places. She kept up with people regularly, even long after her retirement. She and Johnson, the niece she was closest to, wrote letters back and forth for years, catching each other up on what they were doing and exchanging information about goings-on back in Grenada. The tradition dated back to when they were still living on the island there was no electricity to make phone calls. 
In the months before her death on December 21st, Johnson would send her letters reminding her of moments they shared together, trying to jog her waning memory. Her final letter, which Jerome never got a chance to read, described one year she came to Kansas City for Christmas. They went to the plaza, strung up with lights, and had a nice meal. Those are the kinds of memories she's trying to think of instead of these past few years of decline. One of her favorite stories was how Jerome paid for her tuition to go to college, learning about psychology and discovering she really wanted to be a social worker. Her aunt's one condition with her generous aid was simple, pass it forward. So she paid for another one of Jerome's nieces to go to college. She liked to bring out the best in everyone, Johnson said, because everyone has potential and they should use as much of that potential as possible. There is one photograph of the doctor that goes along with this article. She's wearing a red top and a beaded necklace. The caption reads, Dr. Norris Jerome smiles for a photo. She worked at the University of Kansas Medical Center for four decades, developing the study of nutritional anthropology, which looks at how human behavior and nutrition are linked. That was an obituary from the February 20th edition of the Kansas City Star newspaper. The title was Dr. Norge Jerome, researcher who founded field of nutritional anthropology dies at 91. It was originally published February 20th, 2022, and was written by Jack Howland. The next story for today is from the Associated Press and its AP.com website. The title is Black Population Grows in Suburbs, Shrinks in Cities. It was written by Sophia Turin and was originally published March 13, 2022. A longtime area staple with its wagon wheel decor and Roy Rogers ribeye, the ranch steakhouse is fighting to reopen as one of the last sit-down restaurants in the once flourishing black Chicago neighborhood of Roseland. About 13 miles away near Indiana, Christopher Kane and wife Deja Cousins Kane sought a new market for their wine bar that promises good vibes only, settling on the suburb of Lansing, where growth has included a steady increase in black residents. The two enclaves of roughly 30,000 people reflect how black migration patterns in the 21st century are changing the makeup of metropolitan areas nationwide. For decades, Black residents have been leaving some of the nation's largest cities, while suburbs have seen an increase in their black populations. Those two trends have now spread to even more areas of the country, according to the 2020 U.S. Census. The patterns echo the white flight that upended urban landscapes in the 20th century. Like those who left cities before them, Black residents often move because of worries about crime and a desire for reputable schools, affordable housing, and amenities. But there are key differences. Leaving black city neighborhoods that are starved for investment is often more of a necessity than a choice, and those who do settle into new suburban lives often find racial inequities there too. From 1990 to 2000, 13 of the United States' biggest cities lost black residents. By 2020, it was 23. According to the census, roughly 54% of black residents within the 100 biggest American metro areas were suburbanites in 2020, up from 43% two decades ago, according to Bill Fry of the Brookings Institution, while New York, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia 
all lost black residents from 2010 to 2020. The change was especially notable in Chicago, which gained population but lost 85,000 black people, the highest number after Detroit, according to the 2020 census. Those numbers could vary slightly, as the Census Bureau reported last week that 3.3% of the black population was undercounted in the 2020 census, a rate higher than in 2010. The official count found that a section of Roseland measuring less than one square mile lost 1,600 black residents. Now, the area near where former President Barack Obama was a community organizer, located about 20 minutes south of downtown, doesn't even have a grocery store. That makes Judy Ware, who bought the ranch restaurant in 2018, more determined to hang on. We take pride in trying to keep this institution in the neighborhood, she said. It's needed. For others, though, the suburbs offer a fresh choice. Cousins Kane and her husband surprised themselves in choosing Lansing, which wasn't always friendly to black people. Settled by Dutch and German immigrants, the city has seen a roughly 50% increase in its black residents who now represent almost half the population. Lansing recently elected its first black trustee. It feels like we are finally getting an opportunity to bring something to the table and bring something to the conversation, Cousins Kane said. The trends are nuanced. Part of the explanation is that black residents are continuing to move to southern cities in a reversal of the Great Migration, a movement that began in the 1910s and resulted in millions leaving the South for northern cities to escape discrimination. But more recently, some of the starkest changes are happening within metro areas as suburbs of major cities see black population growth. Black residents, who represent roughly 40% of Chicago's population in 1980, now make up less than 30%. Their presence increased, meanwhile, in dozens of Chicago's suburbs from 2010 to 2020. Chicago residents and demographers offer no shortage of reasons for the urban exodus. The decline of the steel industry and blue-collar jobs starting in the 1970s, the war on drugs, the dismantling of public housing in the 2000s that displaced thousands of black residents, school closures in 2014 that disproportionately affected black and Latino children. It's really hard to point to one specific thing, said Dan Cooper, director of research with Chicago's Metropolitan Planning Council. And when you look at the confluence of factors, black folks haven't been centered in policy or they are centered in wrong ways. Chicago, long a segregated city, continues to report disparate outcomes by race when it comes to home ownership, income, transportation access, and more. In Roseland, residents note persistent crime, delayed city services, and a train line that ends at Roseland's northern edge. Worries persist about population loss diluting black political power as drafts of a political remapping show fewer majority black wards. Many said those issues forced them to leave. Truck driver Chris Calhoun, 32, sought more peace in suburban South Holland in 2014. The deciding factor for him, he said, was, where can I live where my kids can go outside and ride their bikes or we can take a walk around the block as a family without looking over my shoulder? Crystal Finn left in 2015 for law school in suburban Atlanta, where she's now an attorney. If you could do anything better for yourself, why would you want to be there, she said. 
the lack of economic dollars, it's almost like the city doesn't care about Roseland anymore. Once a Dutch enclave, Roseland was annexed into Chicago in 1892. Within decades, there was an influx of black families. Mark Pullins, 56, recalls four nearby grocery stores and has fond memories of Cone Elementary School. Half the neighborhood went to that school, said Pullins, a current resident and activist. They're all gone. Cone is located within the section of Roseland that lost more than 1,600 black residents. The school sits vacant, a green for sale sign out front. It is among the roughly 55 schools targeted by former Mayor Rahm Emanuel in the nation's largest mass school closure. Nearby homes and businesses, including a candy shop, are shuttered. The vacancies extend down a once-thriving business corridor that Preservation Chicago has deemed among Chicago's most endangered places. Keisha Pleasant, 41, bought her first home in Roseland, but violence and dwindling amenities pushed her out. I can't retire in this area, she said. I want to come outside, and I don't want to be scared that somebody will be shooting at me. Last year, she moved to Lansing. Samira and Jarrell Miller, capital S-A-M-E-E-R-A-H, capital J-E-R-R-E-L-L, moved with their daughter to a leafy Lansing street six years ago after living in Chicago and neighboring Oak Park. They bought a home near a top school for less than what they would have paid in Chicago. Lansing's median home price is about $195,000, less than half the city's median. Lansing, to this day, still has kids outside in the summertime playing, said Jarrell Miller. You don't really get that in the city without worrying. The growing black population prompted Michaela Smith, who moved to Lansing in 2002, to seek office. She became the suburb's first black trustee last year after a challenging campaign in the predominantly white suburb. I had to do more persuasion to convince the voters, Smith said. Activists say Lansing has had its fair share of issues involving race. In 2017, a black teenager was held down and threatened by a white off-duty police officer, a confrontation that led to the city to enter a memorandum of understanding with activists and the United States Department of Justice. Pastor David Bixby of In the Upper Room Ministries recently held a community call about disproportionate traffic stops, noting a major thoroughfare largely divides black and white residents. It's still a segregated town, he said. Still, the 76-year-old, who moved into the parsonage six years ago, has about 250 congregants now, an increase of about 20%. Lansing is also seeing a boost in black-owned businesses. Kane and Cousins opened their chic SL wine bar last year, with R&B and jazz setting the mood. Support, particularly from black customers, has been strong. We want our own version of cheers, Cousins said. Roseland's residents who remain take pride in Obama's work there and say they've seen signs of a turnaround. Chicago officials recently launched a $750 million program to improve neglected neighborhoods, including Roseland, and have detailed plans for a train line extension. The Greater Roseland Chamber of Commerce hopes a community hospital will grow into a medical district. Judy Ware is preparing to resume table service at the ranch after struggling through the coronavirus pandemic. 
A fire set during unrest following George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis destroyed the restaurant's interior and takeout only couldn't sustain the business, which has been operating for more than 50 years. After renaming it Ware Ranch Steakhouse and installing new flooring and orange booths, Ware is feeling optimistic as she prepares to reopen this month. If we can weather the storm, I think we'll come out good on the other side, she said. There is a lot of stuff waiting to happen in Roseland. There are several pictures and a graph that go along with this story. The first shows a lady wearing a black parka and a red turtleneck sweater. She's standing in front of a sign that says the Ranch Steakhouse. The subtitle reads, Judy Ware poses for a photo outside her restaurant in Chicago, Thursday, January 20th, 2022. Judy Ware is preparing to resume table service at the ranch after struggling through the coronavirus pandemic. A fire set during unrest following George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis destroyed the restaurant's interior and takeout only couldn't sustain the business, which has been operating for more than 50 years. The next photograph shows a man and a woman standing in a doorway. The man is wearing a white shirt. The woman is wearing a black T-shirt. She's also wearing glasses. The man has dreadlocks. The caption to the photograph reads, Deja Cousins Kane left and her husband Christopher Kane posed for a photo at their SL Wine Bar in Lansing, Illinois, Tuesday, January 20th, 2022. The owners of a black-owned wine bar that opened during the pandemic and has had great business. For decades, black residents have been leaving some of the nation's largest cities while suburbs have seen black population growth. The 2020 U.S. Census shows these trends have spread to more areas. The changes have been particularly notable in Chicago. The next photograph shows a lady standing outside a building wearing a winter coat. She's smiling at the camera. She has on glasses. Her hair is braided. The caption reads, Samira Miller, capital S-A-M-E-E-R-A-H, poses for a photo at her home in Lansing, Illinois, Tuesday, January 20th, 2022. Samira Mira and her husband moved to Lansing around five years ago with a young daughter. For decades, black residents have been leaving some of the nation's largest cities while suburbs have seen black population growth. The 2020 U.S. Census shows these trends have spread to more areas. The changes have been particularly notable in Chicago. The next photograph shows a man standing inside a church. The carpet is red, and there are red cushions on the dark wooden pews. The caption reads, Reverend David Bixby poses for a photo in his church in Lansing, Illinois, Tuesday, January 20th, 2022. He moved to Lansing, Illinois six years ago. His predominantly black church has grown in that time by at least 20%. The graph is a map of the United States of America. It has dots that indicate the increase or decrease of black population in cities and towns across the country. The title to the graph is Black Population Change, 2010 to 2020. That was the story, Black Population Grows in Suburbs, Shrinks in Cities. It was from the Associated Press's AP.com website and was written by Sophia Tareen.
Next in today's program is an article from New York Magazine and its January 31, 2022 edition. The title is Fear of the Hoodie, written by Emil Wilbekin, capital W-I-L-B-E-K-I-N. The history of the hoodie aligns with America's divisions of class, race, and identity. It has served as a vehicle for both this country's dreams, athleticism, higher education, luxury, and denials, counterculture, anti-establishment, racial injustice. It was born in the 1930s at Champion when the clothing company that made sweatshirts attached a hood. It soon became popular with athletes and laborers in the Northeast because the added fabric served as a form of protection against the elements and later with high school athletes who would wear their school's logos and crests on their chests. Then, in 1973, the beat dropped in the Bronx, and the hoodie became the uniform of MCs, stick-up kids, graffiti artists, and b-boys. A staple of hip-hop culture, the hoodie represented defiance, the down-low, discretion, and dignity. When skateboard kids in L.A. and punk rockers in New York City adopted it, the sweatshirt with the hood became a symbol of disruption. Suddenly, the counterculture found itself with a new street-style standard that could be idiosyncratic by way of color, size, patches shredding, band logos, safety pins, skulls and crossbones, bleaching, or whatever you wanted to add to say fuck you. In the golden era of hip-hop, the hoodie went global. Tupac Shakur wears the hoodie in the movie poster for Juice, as do the Wu-Tang Clan on the cover of their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, in 1993. This is when the fashion industry began appropriating the urban look, creating the luxury versions of the hoodie worn on the runways of Gucci, Prada, Versace, Ralph Lauren, Isaac Mizrahi, Chanel, and Giorgio Armani. Like hip-hop, the hoodie had crossed over again. But its association with black culture raised the hackles of the white establishment. In 2005, the NBA, under then-Commissioner David Stern, announced its controversial dress code aimed at clothing associated with hip-hop culture, banning players from wearing jerseys, shorts, hats, do-rags, t-shirts, large jewelry, sneakers, boots, especially Timberlands, and hoodies. Then Trayvon Martin was fatally shot, and his killing made the hoodie a symbol of black life, internalized anger, and social justice globally. On March 21, 2012, activists in New York staged the Million Hoodie March from Union Square to the United Nations. That day, I wore my hoodie on the subway, walking through the streets of Midtown and at work in the offices of Time Incorporated, along with my colleagues, instead of our usual blazers and slacks, jeans, and button-downs. Today, for black public figures, the hoodie, thanks in large part to Trayvon's death, has become a superhero cape, the uniform for those who want to make a statement about social and racial justice. The hoodie has become a fundamental piece of my wardrobe since the killing of Trayvon, even more during the COVID-19 pandemic, and most definitely since the murder of George Floyd. What the hoodie has come to represent for me is a sense of comfort, of safety, and a pointed message to the world that as a black man living in this country, my life and the lives of my community matter, no matter how uncomfortable it makes white America feel.
There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It is a picture of a hoodie stretched out on a table. Underneath it is a yardstick. At the top of the picture, there are the words ME12 as received. The caption reads, the hoodie Trayvon Martin was wearing when he was killed. That was the article, The Fear of the Hoodie by Emil Wilpikin. It came from New York Magazine's January 31st, 2022 edition. Next on the African American Hour is an article from the Jazz Magazine Downbeat, and it's March 2022 edition. The title of the article is Emmanuel Wilkins Preaches the Word. It was written by Amar Kalia, capital A-M-M-A-R, capital K-A-L-I-A. The subtitle to this article is My Work is the Intersection Between Spiritual Practice and Black Aesthetics, Emmanuel Wilkins says. The two symbols I draw from are John Coltrane and the Black Church. At age 24, saxophonist and composer Wilkins has established himself as a uniquely thoughtful and empathetic voice in jazz. He weaves lyrical alto lines around the intricate instrumentation of his long-established quartet to produce music that traverses everything from skewed Thelonious mock melodies to the raw power of Ornette Coleman's breath. Signed to Blue Note at 22 with his 2020 debut album, Omega, Wilkins has toured with the likes of Jason Moran, Aaron Parks, and Wynton Marcellus, as well as collaborating on interdisciplinary projects with choreographer Citra Bell, photographer Rock Walker, and artist David Dimplewolf. Capital D-E-M-P-E-W-O-L-F. His latest LP, The Seventh Hand, is his most ambitious work to date, referencing free jazz, biblical vesselhood, and performance art in its seven-track suite, the record culminates in a 26-minute composition where Wilkins' quartet aims to become conduits for free-flowing improvisation directed from a higher entity. It is a heavy concept worn lightly, the divine hand passing through their intuitive instrumental communication to produce the wails, moans, and emotive charges of creativity itself. The commitment to a bone-deep ancestry of improvised music began during Wilkins' Philadelphia childhood, where he was surrounded by the music of the city's native son, Coltrane, and the uniquely black space of the church. Starting out on the violin at three, before moving to the saxophone at eight in order to gain a spot in his school band, he soon realized that music brought with it an innate sense of fellowship. When I started playing the saxophone, community came with it, Wilkins says over a video call from his New York apartment. I was enrolled in the band and then the Clef Club, a great community organization and old musicians union house, which gave me access to so many opportunities, like playing with the Sun Ra Orchestra at 12 after Marshall Allen took me under his wing. I didn't know who they were at the time. I just thought it was some old people I could play with. But it meant that I learned the music on the bandstand. Wilkins smilingly refers to this through his cascade of long braids as the old school way. The sweat and muscle memory of playing through the changes in front of an audience rather than in front of just a music stand. That focus on playing and the freewheeling notion of playing 
continued as Wilkins entered his teens and began performing at his local church as well as at jam nights. Jam sessions in Philly are different from any other, he says. They would call train songs and we would play for 30 or 40 minutes, sometimes just one chord for an hour with only three or four horn players. There was a concerted effort to not stop until there was some sort of transcendent breakthrough in the music. Equally, the church brought its own transcendence. Consistently filling in for absent band members, Wilkins developed his skills on bass and organ as well as saxophone before settling behind the keyboard for weekly services. The music controls the mood and flow of the service, and the chords I would play were directly related to someone catching the spirit or how they internalized the preacher's message, he said. I was improvising, but it meant I had to be in tune with God and then in tune with the feeling in the room. You have to be like water flowing through and pushing. Indeed, water and its intrinsic fluidity are central themes for Wilkins' current work. The cover image for The Seventh Hand depicts Wilkin half-submerged in a river, surrounded by black women, and with his head cradled in the gloved caress of an adorned priestess. I call it a remix of a baptism, Wilkin says. First, you don't usually see women baptizing, so I thought it'd be nice to surround myself in the care of black women here. One of the women to the right also has long nails and a lace front, and I was challenging the notion of which aesthetics are deemed holy and which aren't as accepted with her inclusion. It is a deeply engaging image, one centered on Wilkins' peacefulness in the cyclical surrounds of these women. The reimagined baptism serves as a symbol for the immersion of the Holy Spirit that Wilkins and his band then attempt during the record itself. Water flows through the vessel, but at the moment of vesselhood, you are not only a conduit, you are subsumed too, Wilkins said. That's what we wanted to capture by the time we reached the seventh track. We're sacrificing our bodies to innate feeling and becoming vessels for this music. Referencing the biblical symbolism of the number seven as representative of divine intervention, exceeding six as the limits of human possibility, Wilkins sees this work as something ineffable and only possible in the purely improvised moment of its making. I was interested in putting the body through something rigorous in order to produce a result that is out of body and also dangerous, since we didn't know what would happen, he says. We just went into the studio and recorded all six compositions in order. By the seventh, I told the band to play freely. The result is a yearning, striving, 26 minutes, building from chromatic bop lines on Wilkins' saxophone, backed by punchy comping from pianist Micah Thomas to guttural moans intersecting with bassist Daryl John's languid plucking and ultimately ending on the textural explosion of drummer Kwaku Sumbri's capital K-W-E-K-U, capital S-U-M-B-R-Y, Latin-influenced cymbal work where Wilkins' horn reaches higher and higher as if speaking, screeching in tongues. It is a composition that expresses the telepathic communications of a band that has spent many more years playing together than Wilkins' age would imply. Initially meeting bassist Johns at Christian McBride's Jazz House Kids summer camp when they were in their early teens, Wilkins went on to collaborate with pianist Thomas while the pair were at Juilliard. Drummer Sumbry first played with Wilkins during a session for vibraphonist Joel Ross. The first time we all played together, it felt like this is what we should be doing, and so we kept it together, Wilkins says. 
Gigging regularly around New York, the band soon built a repertoire of original music that formed the basis for Omega. We had been playing as a band for about three years at that point, so we had a lot of work under our belt, Wilkins said. We chose the music for Omega from about 20 compositions we had been playing live, and it soon became apparent that the unifying theme of those works was a cross between sublime and the grotesque. Quoting the filmmaker Arthur Jaffa's assertion that black people have the responsibility to mine the ruins, Wilkins goes on to explain how Omega is an expression of the nuanced and often contradictory foundations of the black American experience. I was confronting painful moments in our history to mine these ruins and see what comes out in those situations, he says. The juxtaposition between that and sublime gives the intricacy of life that is so valuable to black people. That is what sustains us. It's how we're able to spin the trauma and create hilarious material on Twitter. It's a specific complexity that is like salted caramel, things that shouldn't necessarily be together. I'm fascinated with that and how to create it in an oral sense. Released to critical acclaim in August 2020, Omega's exploration of these cycles' social ruins took the form of searching instrumental tributes to the Ferguson riots of 2014 following the police killing of Michael Brown, as well as a requiem for the 1918 lynching victim Mary Turner. As with much of Wilkins' output, his compositions express remarkable complexity and emotional depth, considering several were written when he was only in high school. Yet he views his social commentary is merely following in the footsteps of his jazz forebearers. The greats all express the push and pull, that tension between sublimity and pain. The jagged edges that are essential to black art forms, he says. It is a perfect imperfection. Ever since his youth playing at the Clef Club, connecting with his jazz lineage in the form of mentorship has been key for Wilkins' growth and development. He signed post Aaron Parks as an early supporter of his work, as well as Wynton Marcellus, who had changed my life every time we talked, since he is just so opinionated, he laughs. Pianist Jason Moran has done more than perhaps any other, though, to encourage Wilkins' current success taking him on his first European tour when he was at Juilliard to the slight consternation of his professors. Moran taught Wilkins the rigor of seeing inspiration when playing the same music every night for weeks. He would always tell me to get out and see where we had traveled to, no matter how tired I might be, Wilkins says. I know that's how he gets his inspiration to perform every night, and it's become the same for me. All the senses have to be engaged before I get on the bandstand because it gives me something to draw from. It is an interdisciplinary practice that has translated into the quartet's ongoing experimentations with collaboration, whether with dance, visual art, or even cooking during the 2021 show Blues Blood, Black Future. Working in different mediums feeds me and has meant that our band is really backlogged with music, Wilkins said. We have a lot of compositions in the vault and not that many records released. For the next three or four, we've already played the music and will continue to work on it until it's time to record. Just as Moran took Wilkins under his wing, ultimately producing Omega and sending it to Blue Note boss Don Was, Wilkins is using his own position now to uplift others. When I think of mentorship, I think of people who will do the work when you're out of the room and who set the table for you before you get there, he says. 
I owe a lot to my mentors and with my own classes. I just want to blow my students' minds in the same way mine has been blown many times before. His current workload includes teaching lessons at the new school, as well as running an elective class for non-musicians at New York University on listening to and appreciating jazz. I'm getting this reputation as an educator, but I'm only 24, he laughs. I sometimes feel awkward teaching people my age or older, but you have to let go of ego on both ends to make it work. I'm focused on playing, but I still feel like I have a lot to offer. Namely, Wilkins is committed to enacting diversity and equality in the jazz ecosystem. There need to be more women and more black people playing jazz, and it has to happen young, when you first pick up an instrument. Because by high school, so many people are then phased out, he says. In inner city areas, places that are mainly black, arts programs just don't exist. If there's no encouragement in the school system, you won't see that diversity in the scene. In carving out such a prominent space for himself, Wilkins is already acting as a role model for the changes he wishes to see. I was 22 when I got signed to Blue Note, and there was pressure in feeling like I'm existing on the shoulder of all the greats who came before me, he says. It's important for me not to crush under the pressure. Instead, I just want to contribute to the archive with well-thought-out music that I believe in and that will stand the test of time. With two timeless albums already under his belt, Wilkins is only just getting started. That was the article, Emmanuel Wilkins Preaches the Word, written by Amar Kalia. It appeared in the March 2022 edition of Downbeat Magazine. Next on today's program are a couple of audiobook reviews. The first is from audiophilemagazine.com. The title of the audiobook is Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, written by Peniel E. Joseph. It's read by Beresford Bennett. It falls into the category of history. It will take approximately 13 hours to listen to and was originally published in 2006. Noted civil rights historian Peniel E. Joseph has aptly subtitled this work, A Narrative History of Black Power in America. Focusing primarily on Stokely Carmichael, Huey P. Newton, and Malcolm X, the author puts forward a new interpretation of an important social movement. Beresford Bennett gives a subdued narration of this narrative story. Rather than trying to match the dramatic writing with an equally dramatic vocalization, Bennett calmly and eloquently presents this tumultuous period of American history. The breadth of the work alone makes it a worthy addition to the libraries of American history buffs. Further, Bennett's reading also makes this hotly debated period of African-American and American history both an accessible and fascinating audio experience for any listener. This review was originally published November of 2008, and that was a review of the audiobook Waiting Till the Midnight Hour by Peniel E. Joseph, which is read by Beresford Bennett. The next audiobook review, also from audiophilemagazine.com, is the audiobook Black Cloud Rising by David Wright Falladay, capital F-A-L-A-D-E, read by James Shippey. It falls into the category of historical fiction and takes approximately 9.25 hours to listen to. It was published in 2022. James Shippey impeccably narrates this little-known event in Civil War history. 
One armed abolitionist general, Edward Wilde, led the African Brigade to route Confederate irregulars and bushwhackers to free Virginians and North Carolinians who were still enslaved. Listeners meet Wilde's contingent of formerly enslaved people. Most interesting is highly educated Sergeant Richard Etheridge, the black son of a white slaveholder. The action surges when Etheridge leaves the plantation to join Wilde, who increasingly entrusts him with more responsibility. Lurt reports from front lines via New York Times reporter Tewksbury, capital T-E-W-K-S-B-U-R-Y, add authenticity. Shippy flawlessly conveys diverse accents, personalities, and conversations vital to the account. Audio enriches this sublime look at African Americans in American history. This book is the winner of the Audiophile Earphones Award and was published in 2022. That's a review of the audiobook Black Cloud Rising by David Wright Faladay, read by James Shippey. This review appeared in audiophilemagazine.com in February of 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour today. Rose Marie will be back next week. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.